Yeah, so um, I'm Amber Davis and I work as a PhD coach. Um, and I've been doing that work uh, since I finished my own PhD, which was in political science at the European University Institute in Florence. And um, so what I want to talk about today is really about PhD student uh, mental health. So basically this, the discussion a little bit we had this morning about student mental health, a little bit about figures, um, but also about um, what maybe drives this. So this is a bit of a discussion we were just having about um, you know, um, so, so whether, what the indicators are, where this is coming from. So uh, what I do, I've developed um, a mindfulness-based um, online course myself, and I coach PhD students one-on-one. -on -one. And um, I remember very well, um, yeah, the first time I taught a workshop, and, um, and that was directly after I finished my own PhD. And I, I taught the workshop because of lessons I've learned during my own PhD, which was a very difficult process, because um, I fell ill during my PhD in the third year of my PhD, not with um, uh, mental illness, but with a physical illness. So it was an infectious disease, Lyme disease, and it floored me completely, and I couldn't find out what it was, and I had to drop out of the program completely, I had to drop out of life completely for about three and a half years before I could even consider um, trying to go back to work. So that was my, that was sort of the driving force behind um, what I do. And I went, I went, um, I organized this workshop and I thought, okay, what am I going to talk about? And I thought, okay, I'm just going to make this very vulnerable. I'm going to make this very personal. And um, I'm going to talk about three topics. So the first topic was basically stress. So stress in academia, why are we all so damn stressed as PhD students? Also why, um, and it, it, it's a topic that's not much discussed. Um, and what, what can we do to lower stress levels? What can we do ourselves? So that's where the mindfulness approach sort of comes in. But also what does it do to us sort of physiologically, what does stress do to us and what does it do to us mentally? So how does it affect our work? And um, the second topic I talked about was um, productivity. So, and that's mainly was mainly around how do you organise your work day and sort of work-life balance. How do you do that well? And um, the third topic was thesis anxiety. So again, so these were um, um, I thought it was really interesting. When I was doing my PhD, no one talked. Like no one talked about anything. So you had this sort of sense that something was going on, like people were experiencing things that were maybe not um, not that pleasant, but no one said a word. And if you, it, it was just, if you would try to, to be a bit more open about things, uh, it was socially, it was quite severely punished, I think. I think things were really, um, it wasn't the thing to do. Um, and um, at the end of this workshop that I gave, this guy came up to me and he said, um, so yeah, um, thanks for this workshop. 
and now I know that it's not just me. And I thought, okay, I hit a nerve here. This is something, there's something going on. And as Jill said, there's very little research into these figures, um, or into what's going on with PhD students. But since a couple of years, we, we, there's um, a specific research on mental health um, on PhDs, and it shows quite an alarming figure. So, um, oh yeah, so that, that's what I want, that, so, okay, so the main question that we want to answer is, okay, so, so this is what we talked about earlier. Is this discomfort that we're experiencing? Is this just part of the learning experience? Is it just the fact that doing a PhD is hard work, academic work is hard, but you're on the cutting edge, and especially if you enter, um, if you go into academia further, you're supposed to be on that boundary between what we know and what we do not know. And in that sense, it's very different from the education you've had before, because now, for the first time, you're actually trying to push that boundary. And that's supposed to be hard, so isn't that isn't a lowering of mental health, isn't that sort of part of the process? Isn't it this the same as if you're a writer or if you're an artist, or if you're doing anything that is sort of cutting edge and sort of on the margins that lower well-being is sort of part and parcel of that experience? Or, alternatively, is, um, is there really a systemic problem in academia, and is this um, really a serious well-being and mental health problem which is structural and which actually inhibits our learning and which inhibits the research that we do and which actually holds us back and are we now just grappling with our own anxieties because of a system that we're in um, that doesn't function properly that we actually can't really do the research that we're supposed to do and um, what I've found in my workshops is that um, um, it depends. The, the more competitive schools, so if you go to more competitive departments, they'll all say it's the first one. So they all say it's you. You know, it's all they all say it's a tough deal with it. And um, but, but I, I'd say that the, the research has come out that would that suggests um, suggests the opposite. That suggests that's a, that there's more um, systemic problem. So these studies, um, the first one was done in Berkeley in 2014. And um, so it was the same measure, I didn't put it on here. Uh, can you remind me, it was the same measure you were talking about. The, the CESD 10, yeah. which is the yeah. shortened version. Yeah, of yeah. The this was the short version. Yeah, in so, which case that number is curious. <laughs> yeah, so, so and on that, well, CESD 10, 47% yeah. of PhD students PhD students are severely depressed. So this isn't, you, it's not a, a diagnostic tool, it's just an indicator. But 47%, um, I, I, the, in the general population, I think the cutoff point was, um, or the average was oh, uh, 19%. So it was that, that's how they compared the two. And um, so this was the first one, and that sort of sent shockwaves through, um, or inspiration um, um, through other universities as well to sort of replicate this study. So the replica study was in Amsterdam in 2015, uh, slightly smaller number of um, PhDs there. And on the same um, questionnaire, 37% of PhD students presented as uh, depressed. 
Um, then came a study in Flanders, and this was a huge study. You'll see that's well, um, three thousand more than three thousand five hundred people um, participated. Each participated, and this was a more um, uh, complex questionnaire. It, it was a it was a larger um, larger number of symptoms that was involved. A large number of questions was involved. So on this scale, there were sort of two cut-off points. And the first cut-off point was um, at what they call, are people uh, experiencing psychological distress? That was the first cut-off point. And then the second cut-off point was, okay, are people at risk of a psychiatric disorder? And in that study, they found that 51% uh, of PhD students in Flanders experienced psychological distress and 32% were at risk of a psychiatric, of developing or having a psychiatric disorder. Um, and um, so this study was a very comprehensive one and they also included a control group and they found there that um, if you compared these PhD students with um, a group of people who were similarly educated, like a similar group, that the PhD students were two to three times more likely to have mental health problems than um, a general highly educated population. <coughs> and then the final study that was done was a study in Leiden um, in 2016, uh, which followed the Flanders blueprint. And there they found that 47% of PhDs experienced psychological distress and that 38% 38% are at risk of a psychiatric disorder. So, okay, so these are, these are the figures then you have to ask, you know, what are we looking at? What does this mean? Yeah, I mean, this, you, you can still interpret this in, in, in many ways, and that's, I think that's a discussion that's just uh, beginning. Um, so, in these studies, if you look at predictors, um, sort of the, the key themes that come up. And this is, again, this is a point where they all say, okay, more research is needed, we're just getting started with this. Um, so the, the first predictor they find is, um, or they mention, is low confidence and frustration with research progress. And that would fit within academic work is difficult in itself and this is part of the PhD process, and this is part of doing research, and this is part of being an academic. So this is sort of um, adjusting to, to academic work and academic life. Um, but then, career prospects, features in every study. So people are, and this is what I see um, with people coming to me too, that people are really stressed, they really want to stay in academia, but they're not sure uh, whether they'll be able to stay or not. Um, supervision. Supervision, there's so, so many supervision problems, incredible, uh, and financial pressure. So grants running out, people having to leave the country because they don't, they don't have any money anymore. Um, in some cases, not so much in the Netherlands, uh, but that was in, in the American study, they, just, they found that people were just struggling to survive basically because they had to, had to pay to do the PhD program. And, um, just doing PhD in itself was financially very stressful. 
Uh, but then again, even in Flanders and in the Netherlands, where people are well paid and they're well protected legally, but they're normally their, their employees, they're not students, they have similar problems. So you can't, it's not, um, it's not as simple as, um, um, it's, it's not, uh, it's not so simple that if we could say, okay, you can give everyone um, um, a contract as an employee that you could fix the problem. So yeah, so if, if I zoom out and I look at this, then I would say, you know, we're looking here at what I call the academic rights academic rat race. So if you look at supervision, so, so the career prospects, supervision, uh, and financial pressures, I think you can bundle them together. And I think these pressures operate at all levels, really. Um, so why do people not, why is supervision um, um, not better? Um, well, because there is no incentive. There is no incentive to, 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 uh, to supervise. There is no incentive to, to focus on teaching for staff um, higher up. I mean, the incentive is just to do research and to publish. So I say it just makes sense. It makes sense um, that there's a lot of stress on people in all levels. Okay, so quickly going through solutions. Solutions. So this is what's always. Um, these are the standard standard solutions. Counselling service. This is what we've been talking about. Mindfulness-based courses. Like I, I run a those, one of those courses myself and career coaching for non-academic as well as academic careers. But the researchers say, okay, we need critical reflection of the competitive and individualistic academic culture. Um, because otherwise, there's no, not going to be any change. And I would add to that, well, we need a change of incentives because you can't change a culture within an organization when the incentives are set in a certain way. People, people act on incentives, not so much um, um, yeah, so incentives are important. But what we can do, firstly, is breaking this culture of silence around mental health and well-being. So it's important that we can talk about these things and uh, be open about uh, mental health issues. And lastly, and this is what I, I try to do, is even within the structure as it is, try to change this narrative of productivity um, into... Um, so the narrative now is so much about competition, about pushing yourself, about doing more, about working hard, about working longer hours. And I'd say, well, can we change that into um, reflection on how can we um, marry the two? How can we make sure that productivity and well-being go hand in hand? Because they do. You can't do good work if you're not looking after yourself. Thank you. Uh, should we take one question? One just question. For, uh, we're going to come back to the. We'll have a discussion after this session as well. But uh, just while, while we're here, yes. Was there any sense in these studies, Amber, of whether people come into PhDs with possible existing mental health problems, which are then exacerbated, or you know, did they look at? people's situations before they started their PhDs? Um, they didn't look at, at that uh, like over time, mm. but you do see that problems increase over the years. Yeah. So in the first year of the PhD, things are still going sort of alright, but then uh, towards the end, mental health issues increase a lot. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
If we ever did a big conference on this, I would get historians to do a talk about the melancholy student and the archetype of that and the history of that idea. But there's something about also the sedentary life of the researcher that's just bad for well-being. Did you have a I just wanted to add maybe something that is not in the solutions list, but I think is important is to consider more or to surprise people more before they start a PhD and to see whether they actually really want to do this. Because I think a lot of people start PhDs for wrong reasons and don't really know any details. And mm. it's often also those people who don't do well in the end. I mean, their expectations are completely... And undergraduate degrees as well. Yeah. Yeah. And undergraduate degrees as well. Mm. Going to university because I think they ought to. Mm. They might be better off as a plumber or doing a trade or apprenticeship. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Is this definitely? I mean, that's never a conversation one has. Yeah. Do you definitely you want to go to university? Newcastle are doing some really interesting work around that. Yeah. So everyone thinks Newcastle is just the form, but we met with them and like behind the scenes, we've got all this work about helping students to kind of create choices and critically reflect on what degree they'd like to do. So yeah. like it's not very well known about, but that does kind of exist and that's part of their mission, but it's not very really well done. Like it's not. Yeah. But I think you're right, and sometimes teachers of undergraduates can see. You know, a, a degree is partly if you're really good at it, then you should become an academic. Yeah. Like that's like mm -hmm. the uh, you know the best student right now. You can become an academic. You know. Yes, the, yeah, and also also other students who are very perfectionistic, perfectionistic, yeah. and it's like it's also those people who who like have problem with their progress, for example, as you mm -hmm. said, or have problem with um, the productivity and the fact that they can move forward and that's it. Mm. And what is it, 30% of PhDs actually stay in academia afterwards, something like that? Well, yeah, it depends on the country very much, and on the department as well, yeah. it's not a lot. Yeah. And I, I don't know, did you get uh, uh, advice in your PhD, Helen, about other career prospects and other uh, jobs? Yeah, I was at Newcastle <laughs> in the English department, and they actually did quite a good thing, um, which was mentioned on your slides, about career advice for non-academic and academic. Mm. And yeah, that was quite helpful. Mm. Um, we had lots of very depressing job talks, like right from the very beginning, about how you probably won't get a job. <laughs> 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 so, but, but that's quite good. Yeah, I know. Yeah, definitely. No, Yeah, it's very unusual, I think. To, and that was, you know, I finished my PhD in 2013, so I'm talking about six years ago that yeah. they were already doing that kind of thing there. But yeah, I think it's not as uncommon. Okay, thank you, Amber, very much. Um, Sally, you gave me a talk in, in the slides. Oh, okay. so, uh, I think I'll come sit there as well. Yeah. And so we'll give you 15 minutes from here. And it's that one. Yeah, that one, the right one, exactly. Okay, now Sally's going to look at um, well-being for uh, faculty and staff as well. Yes, yeah, so I, I work at the University of Leeds and I'm um, uh, a psychodynamic psychotherapist and uh, a mindfulness teacher. Um, so I'm going to look at, um, at staff, staff well-being. Um, one of my kind of guiding uh, principles uh, has been the kind of relationship between our inner worlds or our kind of individual well-being, the microcosm, and the 
the social and structural contexts. So although I work mainly with individuals, uh, I've really sought to, to work also at an organisational level. And I think in terms of thinking about wellbeing strategies, um, that's where we, we need to be going. Um, so in terms of, uh, well, I'll just, I'll just go through these bits quite briefly, but it's just I suppose we're thinking about staff wellbeing. We've got some very different kind of contextual kind of policies in terms of, uh, in, in the UK, the Department of Work and Pensions, uh, in 2008 really strongly pushed the government towards uh, seeing work, the workplace as a kind of setting and a place in which well-being uh, could be addressed and particularly that work is, is essentially, is mostly good for us as well as being a potential source of, of stress and ill health. And the World Health Organization have this lovely model of um, a settings approach to uh, action for uh, workplaces and so they're looking at both the physical work environment, the psychosocial, the work conditions, relationships, but also things like community involvement, sense of connection, and personal health resources, or you could think of them as psychological uh, resources that were talked about um, earlier on. Um, I suppose also the context here in terms of numbers is that we uh, are now, uh, so mine will tell us that one in four of us is likely to have some kind of mental health issue each year, um, Many of us are working across the continuum of mental health will see that as one in one, but actually most of us will, have, will come to a threshold of some kind at some point where we, we find it difficult to cope. One in three um, sick notes, I think the NHS came with these statistics first time they reported this uh, a couple of weeks ago, that one in three sick notes or fit notes as they're known um, are now for uh, stress and mental health of some kind. Um, so it's it's uh, in terms of working adults uh, a major a major issue. Um, so one of the approaches, although my background in, in psychotherapy, one of the approaches that we might look at in terms of thinking about an organisational or strategic approach uh, is is helpful to look at uh, the discipline of occupational health psychology. We've outlined sort of three different kind of levels of intervention. One looking at the causes of uh, of stress and the structural issues, if you like, um, and I have to say I don't think that's taken up very much. But but the organisational level in terms of the um, how work's organised, what kind of uh, support levels of control people have over their work, and that kind of thing. Secondary is the more looking at the psychosocial environment, working relationships, preventative um, programmes, so the resilience side. Um, you could, you know whether it's individual coaching. Uh, group interventions, and then the tertiary level is where people have reached the stage of not coping and finding things difficult treating individuals. The models have moved, uh, traditional models of demands, thinking about demands we have at work, uh, um, uh, balanced with the, the control we have over the work, that's shifted now to thinking more about demands and resources, so whether that's uh, time or, or our personal resources, our skills and competencies. And in terms of um, that kind of continuum, we'd see kind of burnout and uh, not functioning ill health on one hand and positive, positive engagement that uh, um, the people uh, whose name, this woman whose name I can't say, Derm Maruti, um, who's done a lot of research on burnout, is now looking at positive uh, engagement and fulfilment at work as being the kind of um, uh, 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 opposite of, of burnout. Um, and that's just the, the picture of the job demands model. Um, there's a lot of, quite a lot of research about um, 
sort of stress and well-being in, in higher education uh, staff, uh, most of it led by Gail Kinman, um, um, some of it survey-based, uh, some of it intervention-based, and, and um, uh, uh, what, what we know is that um, staff uh, in, in, uh, uh, in higher education uh, come out quite highly in terms of professional groupings uh, up there with, 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 the, with the worst. Um, and so one of the things to think about uh, is the uh, uh, internal and external culture. So this is where uh, my kind of interest, so the, the bottom bit here is about thinking about what kind of um, individual or personal characteristics of people having in a higher education. So it's generally a, uh, highly, highly motivated or driven very uh, uh, schooled, um, perhaps earlier on, but also in higher education, very critical mindset of perfectionism earlier on, uh, intolerance and, and misinterpretation of um, ordinary difficulties as failure is a very common thing that I see. There's a competitiveness, uh, um, and this is not just to academia, but I think it, does, it is very strong in academia, where the sense of self is, is very much embedded in the role, so if there's any difficulty with the role, uh, the, the sense of self can kind of implode and um, self-esteem. And I, I think it's a really unfortunate combination with the structural conditions we have in terms of the neoliberal economic policy and the way in which well-being is essentially something that's sort of externalised and not part of the kind of core agenda. Um, uh, uh, so it's a kind of, um, and particularly being involved in an institution now for eight years, I can see and hear accounts of the um, erosion of opportunities to connect, whether that's therapeutically or just in terms of ordinary ways of connecting uh, or having time to go for walks or, or connect with colleagues. Um, yeah, so it's got no market values. I think that's one of the things that we're really up against. Um, or, or perhaps that we can turn on its head in terms of showing how, uh, in terms of sustaining uh, staff populations. Because of course, with, with staff, we, we're looking at sustainability. Might be an actual, we might be able to persuade is a, is, a, is a real concern given that people do stay a long time and go through all sorts of life transitions, health issues, and things. Whilst they are, um, you know, staying as staff. Um, yeah, so I say higher education research is, sort of does put uh, um, higher education staff, particularly academics, in the high uh, risk category in terms of perceived stress. But also, what's interesting is that um, while some of these sort of demands and stresses, particularly these things have changed over the last 10 years, I think the reduction of autonomy, um, the increased admin loads, accountability, and expectations from school from students and job insecurity, particularly in research staff. Um, but actually, the resources, the, uh, um, the, the autonomy that is still around, the, the stimulating, the, the, the ability to use one's skills and pursue one's interests. So academics both have, a high, you know, amongst the top in terms of their reported levels of stress, but also they're amongst the top in terms of their levels of satisfaction. This is a kind of paradox and one that, um, I have to say, I kind of experienced myself in terms of both feeling that I've flourished the most I have in my professional life working in the university, but also coming closest to a complete not a burnout. So uh, I, I can kind of share that. Um, what's been done? 
Of course, at an organisational level, we don't know because there's a general kind of fear of airing dirty laundry and not and not not sharing that. But also, I don't see much uh, um, in terms of the kind of uh, 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 senior management level in higher education being you know thinking about this as an organisational level. Where it is being done, and we're trying some of this at the moment. It's generally in terms of the training of managers to recognise um, that they have a role and duty of care to using the health and safety um, legislation to kind of um, place responsibilities for uh, responding when people are, are show signs of stress or get sick notes for stress and that kind of thing. Um, at an individual level, most uh, higher education institutions have some form of professional support. Um, it's a lot of it is, is outsourced so to employee assistance programs. So again, it kind of echoes that externalising. Um, so it's the, the, the providing it are out there and the staff go out there and have those experiences, which I'm very critical of. It kind of just individualises it, and it doesn't. The, the mechanisms for feedback in terms of problems, uh, you know, whether it's behavioural problems, bullying, or, or you know, uh, particular. Uh, problems going on in, in, in particular parts of the organisation. <clears throat> um, and also it's often tagged on to student services, so if the student councillors or wellbeing people have a bit of time, they might see a few staff rather than really kind of being oriented to thinking about the needs of staff population uh, as being different and the different kind of transitions and um, uh, 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 concerns that they may have. There's just a handful of us providing dedicated services staff um, and we kind of fit, fit in different places so we for example fit in uh, alongside occupational health and, and HR um, others are, are kind of more linked with training and development that kind of thing um, more places now more universities are offering mindfulness training for staff and again there are issues uh, that Siobhan highlighted is it kind of part of the organisation does somebody come from outside um, my particular passion is about embedding uh, well-being in, in the organisation, so would, would want to see more of that. My own service, which I lead, so we, we, we um, in 2010, there was a kind of push to outsource uh, um, occupational health and well-being, but uh, the, the, um, the heads of schools and people who, deans who were involved wanted it brought back in-house and also counselling brought in-house, which was great. So my general um, kind of leadership of this service, it's only a very small service, is that we need to be embedded in, 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 in at a strategic level. That is not easy when um, you talk about faculties being kind of siloed. So are the, were the support services. It's only very recently that we've managed to, um, uh, um, although we've made individual relationships across HR training and what have you, to actually bring people together. So we do now have a coordinated group strategically looking at uh, support for well-being and mental health. We offer one-to-one -one, uh, consultation, psychoeducation, group and team education workshops. Uh, we have uh, 13 personal resilience uh, workshops. We also offer bespoke so, um, uh, schools or you know might ask us to come and do something on away days or other particular issues. There's a lot of interest, for example, at the moment about um, some of the kind of using some of the neuroscience around mindfulness in terms of how your minds work and uh, you know, supporting competence and that's very interesting in terms of the gender issues that we find lots more men uh, engaged in that as also lots more men engaging in mindfulness than would come to the one-to-one -one sessions. 
Um, we've also, one of the kind of things that really pushed for us to make organisational partnerships and influence, so really um, seeing uh, our, uh, the organisation as kind of clients, if you like, not just the individuals. So trying to work with HR and Oc Health, improving their, um, uh, uh, supporting them in their frontline work with uh, staff who are stressed or difficulties. And we're now at the process of moving on to some training and procedures around that. But that's not easy. And even though that's happening, I was thinking about your, your strategy, was I can't get any higher. I can't get an audience at the, at the, at the more senior mm. executive level. We still just, so it feels like we've been working the ground up. Um, although I do have um, quite a lot of seniors who have used the services who are now saying they would champion and if, you know, so as we sort of bang on for more strategic approaches that they might support that. Um, so the guiding principles are working across mental health continuum, being proactive, psychoeducated. We've got a couple of models that really um, we use to uh, show how well-being and functioning, and particularly kind of cognitive functioning, work functioning, um, overlap. Um, and that goes down very well, both in terms of an individual rationale, but also kind of team rationale, if it's working across teams. Um, uh, that's one of the models we use. Um, so it's very much a visual thing with a workable range, our thresholds of tolerance, either side of it, and different, different stress reactions. And another one that people like is a healthy minds platter. Get people to look at this and realize, you know, everyone sees that they don't have any time, any downtime, uh, but connecting time has been eroded, and um, focus time is kind of over, you know, they're over, over focused at work and that kind of thing. Um, uh, Practice-based evidence. So we've we've been very fortunate to have partnerships with our uh, colleagues in psychology who've done research on my mindfulness courses, and I, I've. I've one of my interests is, is in uh, looking at how um, evidence is collated around mindfulness, and in particular, whether it's just seen as, as an individual thing or how much it's kind of appraised in terms of its embeddedness in the organisation. So I've used a, a, a model that looks at um, how does it relate to the community, how is it resourced, uh, and that kind of thing, rather than just as does it work at an individual level. Mm. Um, so what do we need to do? Interesting, very much echoing what you were saying, Amber, um, Ross Gilson, this uh, critique of the neoliberal academy, and talk, calls, call, calls her paper breaking the, the silence, or getting out of the shame trap, so really kind of addressing both this parallel between the kind of neoliberal conditions, but also our kind of intolerant, self-critical conditions inside. Um, <clears throat> cross-disciplinary perspectives and action we've got to get in at an organisational system level as well as individual minds we do need some strong leading ideas about well-being, functioning and flourishing that are easily conveyed um, that staff and leaders and managers can relate to we need to create cultural conditions where social conditions are thriving are valued and where help seeking um, is seen as kind of uh, effective rather than a, a weakness and that you know, people get that individually, it's just getting its kind of knowledge systemically. We need to take a long view and allow the conditions and activities and relationships to grow. So I suggest um, that we've got just the last talk. Uh, Danny, uh, who's going to be talking about student volunteering, I would just, you know, look 
finally at how um, universities connect with the community around them. Uh, and then we'll do questions for uh, this final session of presentations. Thank you very much, Sally. Danny has waited uh, patiently through the whole day. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I'll just give a short talk about um, my experience as an undergraduate uh, in university, um, and also about my experience with being in a volunteering group at university, and then being a part of a committee on that volunteering group at university, and also um, volunteering in the community outside of university, and how the university supported me with that, and um, also how I went about it independently. Um, so I think, so when I first came to university uh, at Queen Mary as an undergraduate, I studied global health. Um, I, I think that the first, well, once you've got through the UCAS applications and engagement with the academic department that you're in, um, the next step is meeting your peers, and that's also that's a huge part of your uh, start to well-being at university. Um, I think making social groups and um, uh, going out with your peers and uh, just making friendships is, is a huge part because it creates support networks whilst you're at the university um, and whilst you're going through the stresses of uh, studying. Um, and so uh, when you first get to university you go to Freshers Fair and you can go to, or well, you can go to Freshers Fair, you can go to the volunteering fairs um, and through that I found Open Minds um, which is the uh, organisation that I'm now the president of. and. Um, the idea of Open Minds is to uh, basically train um, students in collaboration with a group of psychiatrists and also in collaboration with a teacher and the safeguarding department at the university um, to go into schools um, between the ages of year, uh, secondary schools between the ages of year eight and year 11 um, and deliver workshops that cover um, different mental health topics. Um, to a level that basically provokes discussion, normalises and um, points people in the right direction to see if they need help, so to counselling services or to external services. Um, and so my experience of that is firstly um, that it creates a community um, within the university that um, enables people to make connections and uh, increase their own well-being. Um, secondly, it provided uh, university students with skills um, and um, going to schools and teaching is not an easy job, especially if you're a first year undergraduate student and um, it's quite a hard task. We do try and prepare all of our um, students for that first going into a lesson, but um, they're all skills that students can learn and I think we've spoken a bit about people's career after they go out of university and worrying about um, uh, whether their degree is enough, and I think sometimes it can be, there is a pressure to do loads of stuff outside of university and you need to do this, this, this and this, but also getting involved in volunteering groups does provide people with skills that they can put on CVs, um, as well as some, being involved in something that they actually really um, enjoy being a part of, and uh, so Open Minds was first started by medical students, um, and so uh, the medical students that got involved um, has an interest in going into sort of a public health um, uh, perspective of engaging with children, engaging, engaging with kids, and prevent, almost uh, as a preventative measure uh, to uh, providing a different kind of medical education. Um, 
so that's that's uh, open minds, and that's that's what I, I think open minds is a really really well involved in it. So I think it's a really good program. And if uh, any of them are running at any of the universities that you're affiliated with, it'd be awesome to um, get students engaged with it. Um, but then also, uh, I've been involved with volunteering. So uh, Queen Mary provides lots of different opportunities to get involved in volunteering, and one of those is like a buddy scheme with um, second and third year students buddying up with first year students. And uh, I found that very, very helpful in my first year at university um, to do with my own mental well-being because coming to a new university in a massive city like London um, can be, if you, if you take out even the academic side of it and the studies, that is a huge step. Um, and I think having a group of people already set up for me when I got here that I knew that I could engage with and wanted to go out uh, for meals or coffee or just this is where stuff is in university, this is where to go. Um, it's a very simple thing, but it does introduce people into university life at a slower process than um, is you start your course now and then, and then uh, I think that can produce quite a lot of loneliness and quite a lot of uh, difficulty to engage. Um, so that's one aspect of volunteering and that's based both campuses at the Queen Mary one and the end. so obviously there's different types of students in medical school in, in the, the um, main campus. Um, but then also there's opportunities to go into the community and volunteer um, and I think that also really is helpful for students who have just come to a new, a new city and a new area um, and uh, you can go in um, volunteering food banks around the area um, and that shows students the area, it shows students what's going on in the area and it also shows students that uh, you can get engaged in things outside of university um, and hopefully encourage them to get involved with stuff after university as well um, which is just good for society. And then uh, there's also day volunteering at the university and um, uh, short periods like a week of volunteering. Um, and like I say, it's just about getting people together, getting students together, and um, uh, hopefully combating the issue of loneliness and the issue of uh, not knowing what to do, not knowing where you are, not knowing how you fit into the university um, at some level. Um, so, so that's what another way in which I think that volunteering within the community is, is really, really helpful for students. And then um, I'm, I, I'm just a bit of a sucker for volunteering in most <laughs> So um, I, I get involved in quite a lot of volunteering outside of the university as well. Um, and so I've just finished um, a place at Sustain, which is a, a sustainable food and farming um, organisation. Um, and it's a huge alliance and it was a really, really good thing to get involved with because it supports my degree and it supports my um, what I want to do after university and uh, Queen Mary supports me with that in terms of they provide skills awards and they provide um, uh, uh, opportunities to get recognised for stuff that you're doing outside of university mm. um, and I think that's also very helpful in encouraging students into those, those, those roles. Um, but also another reason why I think volunteering and also societies as a whole are really important are that um, there is, as an undergraduate student, you have a relationship with your academic department, you have a relationship with your university, you have a relationship with your students, and you have a relationship with specific things that involve your students, like your halls that you're, you're put into, or your specific part of the school in the department that you're in. Um, 
And so I think that, uh, that a, lot of the, the, a lot of this stuff combats the kind of relationships that are student to student. Um, and Open Minds is a student-led program, um, and so the, the committee is run by students, and so is the national committee. So anyone who gets involved in that is talking to other students around the country, talking to other students. Um, and these things aren't things that uh, specifically talk, target um, mental health issues, but they are things I think that um, target well-being and, and engaging students within the community. So I think, uh, yeah, I mean, just to sum up, summarise, I think these things are all really important um, to encourage within universities, and if any student uh, wants to get wants to start up a volunteering society or get involved with this volunteering society, I think it's really important for universities to point them in the right direction, um, and just societies in general, um, and also to engage with the local community because um, otherwise, a lot of students find it difficult to. Um, engage with each other and, mm. and so yeah I think I think that's my perspective on volunteering within, within universities. Mm. Um, but yeah. Thank you Dan. Thank you. Yeah.